Welcome, welcome, everybody. We're grateful that you're here tonight. Go ahead and make your way to a seat. And we're going to get started tonight. Grateful that you're here. Who had a wonderful dinner tonight? About three people. Thanks so much, Dustin, for putting together that wonderful meal tonight. So go ahead and make sure you take a seat or someone will put you in a seat. Uh, we got to get rolling tonight here. Make sure you're sitting at a table with uh, some other human beings because you will need them tonight. We're going to do some table talk, some group activity. So let's get started here tonight. In the uh, 17th century, the 17th century, the newly established American churches were facing a crisis, a crisis, especially when it came to Puritan factions. There was a serious decline in the importance of religious life. If you can put on this slide here, we see a, a picture of some Puritans. They look distinctly like... The pilgrims. But the Puritans are different than the pilgrims. The pilgrims were separatists, meaning they wanted to separate from England and the Church of England. The Puritans wanted to stay connected. They stayed loyal to England and to the Church of England. But they were facing this crisis, the Puritans. They were, in short, the second generation, they didn't want to come to church. They were done with church, didn't want to go, didn't want to wake up early and, and go and praise God. I mean, that, that sounds familiar, right? That's something that has kind of been with every single generation. But they tried all different types of techniques to get this second generation to go to church. I mean, they had town hall marketing campaigns, flashy Facebook invites, infomercials. They even had like bumper stickers on their horse-drawn wagons and buggies. But they, they tried even doing something what I think is absolutely remarkable. And it's actually very interesting to me. It's called a Jeremiad. A Jeremiad is a uniquely American religious service. A sermon type that's deeply rooted in Puritan covenant theology. Okay, but what, is that, what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, the Jeremiah was named after the Israelite prophet known as the weeping prophet, Jeremiah. Jeremiah had a heavy burden to bear. He had a tough job, a lot on his shoulders. And this Jeremiah that's named after the prophet Jeremiah was adopted by the Puritans in an attempt to get God back on their side. So in the days leading up to the Jeremiah, they would be filled of prayer and fasting. And when the day of the Jeremiah came, all the people would gather together in the meeting house, also known as the long house. This was a building that was laid out west to east, and you would enter in always through the west, and you would face the east. The inside was plain and simple, basic, with benches, and the elders would sit behind the pastor and look at the congregation. How, how distracting would that be if there were like 10 other people back here looking at you at the same time? I mean, they might be picking their nose, scratching their head, whatever. It would be 
a little bit distracting. But that's what it would look like as you walked inside for the Jeremiah. But here at the meeting house at the Jeremiah, the people would gather. And for eight hours on this day, they would publicly confess their sins. Publicly confess their sins for eight hours. And the church would feel very unburdened by this. And in most cases, it was really a beneficial practice. The event was motivated by this conviction that God disciplined not only individuals for unconfessed sin, but churches and also whole communities for unconfessed sins. So make sure tonight that you're in a nice and cozy spot because for the next eight hours or so... So that's from like now until 3.42 a.m. We're going to publicly confess our sins. Well, don't worry. We'll, we'll save that for another time. Walter's already getting ready to leave here. But I want you to know that the confession is a good thing. Confession is a good thing. Well, I'm not completely sold on this whole theology of trying to get God back on your side, which I think it's kind of unwise to try and manipulate God or even to think that we can manipulate God. But I think that there's something vitally important when it comes to corporate confession, when it comes to confession as a part of worship and discipleship. Well, tonight, as we continue with our study, verse by verse, through the book of Daniel, we're going through chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. We're actually going to take a break from the multi-headed crazy beasts coming out of the sea and all different other crazy places. And we're actually going to talk about something rather normal tonight. A passage that talks about personal and corporate, congregation-wide, people-wide confession. So if you're able to stand, I invite you to stand as we read from Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 through 5a. It says, In the first year of King Darius, son of Ahasuerus, who was of Median descent and who had been appointed king over the Babylonian Empire, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, came to understand from the sacred books that according to the word of the Lord disclosed to the prophet Jeremiah, the years for the fulfilling of the desolation of Jerusalem were 70 in number. So I turned my attention to the Lord God to implore him by prayer and requests. With fasting, sackcloth, and ashes, I prayed to the Lord my God, confessing in this way. O Lord, great and awesome God, who is faithful to his covenant with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned. God, we come before you tonight realizing that we have sinned. But we believe, God, that in you and in your Son, there is the forgiveness of sins. So, Holy Spirit, would you awaken us to this reality? Would you unburden us tonight where we may feel comfortable enough that we would want to go deeper tonight, that we just might be able to confess? We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated.
So we're going to go through this verse by verse at the beginning. We're going to do some group activity, but here's how it unfolds. Verse 1, in the first year of Darius, this would be about 538 BC. So Daniel would have been like 82 years old or something. Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, which is the Hebrew name, if you're following along in your Bibles, you might see something a little bit different. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, might say, or it says Xerxes, so your Bibles might say Xerxes. If you've ever seen that horrible movie called 300, uh, this guy might look a little familiar here with all the piercings and weird jewelry and stuff. But this is probably what it looked like in actuality. Here's a stone relief of Xerxes. He's the guy sitting on the throne with that fantastic, ferocious beard. (laughs) Xerxes' name actually means ruling over heroes. Xerxes is Darius' daddy. His daddy. But... Darius was the one who was of Median descent and who had been appointed king over the Babylonian Empire. So here we are after the Babylonian captivity. The Babylonian Empire has been overthrown by the Persians. But let's take a step back real quick and talk a little bit about the Babylonian captivity, trying to figure out where we are located. I think the the way I usually try and like to explain this is by showing you the alphabet. A, B, C, G, R. That's a good way to remember the ancient Near East and the empires active in the ancient Near East during the Bible times. We've got Assyria, Babylon, Cyrus of Persia, the Greeks, and then the Romans. Well, in 587, 586... The Babylonians come and they completely destroy Jerusalem, the temple, everything, the the whole town. And they take those people and they uproot them and they take them across what's called the Fertile Crescent into Babylon or present-day Iraq. And here they lived for about 48 or so years as captives. It was a horrible time. I mean, their homeland just got destroyed. Their temple was burned to the ground. But here they are living in, type of a, in a type of like ghetto sort of situation. But good things emerged during this time of Babylonian captivity. Rabbis emerged as leaders. You have the, the presence of synagogues which start to, to uproot. And also you have the writing down of Scripture. Not that it wasn't written down before, but there was this big drive to now write down what had been communicated Orally up to this point. So we're here just at the tail end after the Babylonian captivity. Verse 2 says, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, came to understand from the sacred books that according to the word of the Lord disclosed to the prophet Jeremiah, the years for fulfilling of the desolation of Jerusalem were 70 in number. Daniel somehow got a hold of a scroll from the prophet Jeremiah. And this prediction that he has in Jeremiah 25 and 29. Jeremiah had predicted that Jerusalem would lay in ruins for a period of 70 years. And then God would destroy Babylon. But if you're a math major and you're trying to do the math, you're thinking 587 slash maybe 586 
to 539, that just doesn't add up. That, that doesn't count to 70. So was Jeremiah wrong in his prediction of 70 years? No. I mean, if we go to the next slide, you can see that Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple about 586. But I think verse 2 is referring to the destruction of the temple in 586 to the temple's rebuilding as it's completed in 515. So that roughly gives you 70 years. I think it actually gives you like 69 years. But if you think about the month difference, it'll get you 70. So I think Jeremiah is right. And what's going on here? Daniel is lamenting. He's reading the scroll of Isaiah, seeing that it's going to be a period of 70 years And he's having a bad day about it all. Verse 3 says, So I turned my attention, the Hebrew is pane, my face. I turned my face to the Lord God to implore him by prayer and requests with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. He's lamenting the destruction and also the captivity. When lamenting, the ancient Israelites would wear sackcloth. They would fast. They would put ashes on their head. To show their remorse. Kind of a strange thing to do, but it's what they did. A visible manifestation of their mourning. Verses 4 through 6 says, I prayed to the Lord my God, confessing in this way, O Lord, great and awesome God, who is faithful to his covenant with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned. We have done what is wrong and wicked. We have rebelled by turning away from your commandments and standards. We have not paid attention to your servants, the prophets, who spoke by your authority to our kings, our leaders, and our ancestors, and to all the inhabitants of the land as well. From the top down, we've sinned, is essentially what he's saying. What does it mean to sin? Anybody? What what is sin? Okay, to do something against God's will, something wrong. Yeah, to miss the mark is probably like the most common definition. Like you're, you're at target practice and you just totally botch it, right? Well, I think sin is often just pointing to ourselves, pointing to ourselves. And at the root of, of sin, of every sin, there's this element of selfishness. Why do people steal? Because they're selfish. Why do people murder? Because they're selfish. Why do people look at pornography? Because they're selfish. Sin is missing the mark. It's pointing to yourself. We've done what is wrong, Daniel continues to say. We've done what is wicked. We've rebelled by turning away from your commandments. We haven't paid attention to the prophets who spoke by your authority. I want to do something real quick in the groups where you're at with other people. You have the text of Daniel 9, 4 through 19 in front of you. I want you to read this aloud. I want you to have one person read this aloud. And I want to have one person tally up all the occurrences of you slash your slash yourself. Another person tally up all the occurrences of our, another person, we, another person, us. If you don't have enough people at your table, you get to do double duty. All right? Ready, go.
All right, about 30 seconds left. Let's wrap it up. If you didn't get through, that's okay. Uh, Thanks for trying. Uh, Let's hear your tallies. Let's see what your scores have uh, to show for themselves. So how many did we get uh, when it came to the you, yourself, or your? 28? Anyone get more than that? I got 30, so. All right. Um, How about our? 17, I got 19. Um, counting is hard, I know. Um, how about we? How many we's? 17? And I got 15. Um, and then how about us? How many us? I got seven. Somehow you got eight. How many did you guys get? Only got six. That's okay. Counting is hard. I'm just kidding. It's hard. It's hard to do this right now. But what what might this say? I mean, what's significant about all of this repetition? What do you think? Anybody? Okay. What might be significant about this? Personalizing toward whom? Okay, God and... Not not, not us, but Daniel and... All Israel, right? Things that are repeated are important. Things that are repeated are important. Things that are repeated are important. Here we have the repetition of what's called the first common plural. Our, we, and us. We see this repeated 19 or so times. And then we have the second person singular, you, which gets repeated uh, at least like 30 times apparently. The the confession is strikingly inclusive. Our, us, it includes Daniel and kings and leaders and ancestors, all the inhabitants of the land. It's all about us and all about our sin. But the confession is directly pointed at God. We have directly sinned against you, God, and we're asking you to forgive us. I love how Daniel started his prayer in verse 4. O Lord, great and awesome God who is faithful to his covenant with those who love him and keep his commandments. Well, Daniel's not trying to butter up God here. He's just stating the obvious truth. God, you're great. You're awesome. You're faithful. Verse 7 follows in similar pursuit. You're great, God, and we need your help. You are righteous. Or the Hebrew more literally says, to you belong righteousness. Like it's something he owns. Like it's something he created. Because he has. Oh Lord, but we are humiliated. Well, the Hebrew is literally, and to us belongs shame of face this day. So, so righteousness belongs to God. Shame belongs to the Israelites. Maybe we want to insert ourselves there too. 
this day. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far away, in all the countries in which you have scattered them, because they have behaved unfaithfully toward you. Daniel here is giving reason in his prayer of confession for the destruction and for the captivity. We have behaved unfaithfully toward you, God. We haven't cared for the marginalized, the poor, the orphan, the sick. We've behaved unfaithful. We've worshipped other gods. And as a result, verses 8 through 10 continue, O Lord, we have been humiliated Our kings, our leaders, our ancestors, because we have sinned against you. Yet the Lord our God is compassionate and forgiving. Literally, to the Lord belong compassion and forgiveness. Even though we have rebelled against him, we have not obeyed the Lord our God by living according to his laws that he set before us through his servants, the prophets. Verse 11 continues, All Israel has broken your law and turned away from not obeying you. Reminds me a lot of Paul's case that he makes in Romans chapter 3 where he just talks about how humanity is so messed up. Like there's not even one who is righteous. Nobody. And he goes on to list it blow after blow after blow. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Let's move forward with verse 11. Therefore, you have poured out on us the judgment solemnly threatened in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against you. He has carried out his threats against us and our rulers who were over us by bringing calamity on us. What has happened to Jerusalem has never been equaled under heaven, just as it is written in the law of Moses. So all this calamity has come on us. Still, we have not tried to pacify the Lord our God by turning back from our sin and by seeking wisdom from your reliable moral standards. So they're sinning, and they know they're sinning, and they keep on sinning. This Hebrew term, emet, here for for this translated reliable moral standards, it doesn't refer to like some abstract truth but to the reliable moral guidance found in the covenant law, found in God. Verse 14 says, The Lord was mindful of the calamity, and he brought it on us. For the Lord our God is just in all he has done, and we have not obeyed him. I can remember a time when I collapsed in sin. Like, literally collapsed in sin. I don't even remember what, what sin it was, but all I remember, I was standing in a doorway. I was leaning up against the, the doorpost, and I was about to tell a lie. And I don't even remember what lie it was. I just remember I was, it was to my mom. And I'm speaking this lie to her, and it just flies off my lips. And I'm standing here in the doorway, leaning up against the doorpost, and immediately... I just feel like a sensation that I I haven't ever felt before. Immediately stricken in my heart and in my guts. Like I felt like a square foot of tinfoil that just got crinkled up into a small little ball. That was the sensation tingling all over. And I immediately collapsed. My knees were shaking. They gave way. And I'm like holding on to the doorpost. 
And I swing back in and say, I just lied. Here's the truth. And instantly the whole feeling, the whole sensation diminished. It went away. It was the strangest thing. Now, that doesn't happen every time I sin. I might not sin so much if that happened to me every single time. But isn't that what happens to us when we sin? Maybe we're thinking we're we're getting away with it, or maybe it makes us feel good. But inside, I think there's that aluminum tinfoil crinkling going on where it just kind of crushes us a little bit more inside. That, That this sin wants us to collapse. It wants to defeat us. But confession and living by the truth that we are saved by the blood of Jesus gives us strength. We don't have to collapse. We can tell the truth no matter how how hard it might be. Daniel calls out a corporate confession and he includes himself. We have sinned. We have behaved wickedly against God. But he makes the appeal to the one who brought the slaves out of Egypt. And surely this is the one who can bring sinners out of their sin. Verses 15 through 18a continues. Now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with great power and made a name for yourself that is remembered to this day, we have sinned and behaved wickedly. O Lord, according to all your justice, please turn your raging anger away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For due to our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors, Jerusalem and all your people are mocked by our neighbors. So now, our God, accept the prayer and requests of your servant and show favor. The Hebrews literally let your face shine like a smile. We've seen this a number of times in Scripture. But show favor or make your face shine to your devastated sanctuary for your own sake. Listen attentively, my God, and hear. Open your eyes and look on our desolated ruins and the city called by your name. The desolations here refer to the condition of Judah's towns. And the city called by your name is an expression that implies that God is the owner of this city. The city called Jerusalem. The results of the sin of all Israel are catastrophic. I tallied them up in what we saw in Scripture. We've got humiliation for the kings, the leaders, the ancestors, everyone. We've got exile, which means death. You're ripped out of your homeland from all that you knew to be familiar. And you're gone for over a generation. That means death. You're scattered There's judgment, there's calamity, there's the experience of God's raging anger, there's mockery, there's the devastated sanctuary, there's the desolated ruins. Jerusalem and its temple has been destroyed. The house of God has been burned to the ground. And what does that show theologically, especially to the surrounding nations? It shows that our gods beat up your God. That's what it shows. At least in their framework. Verse 18 continues, for it is not because of our own righteous deeds that we are praying to you, but because your compassion is abundant. Daniel appeals to God not out of any righteous deed that that he has done or that they could ever do, but out of God's abundant compassion. Now, God has not been defeated. He has not been destroyed. 
He allowed the temple to be destroyed. He allowed Jerusalem to be sacked. There are no other gods. God is the only one and true God. Verse 19 says, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Don't delay for your own sake, my God. For your city and your people are called by your name. You know, if you've tuned in at all to the state of our world, our nation, our community, our city, our church, there's a lot of hurt. And not all, but a lot of the hurt is a byproduct of sin. But confessing sin is a way of healing. It's a way of unburdening. It's a way of going deeper. I hear people all the time talking about how they want to be in a Bible study or be at a church or be in a class where they just go deep into the Word of God and they get really deep. I struggle with that. What does that mean to get deep? I'm thinking, okay, well, is it that we're going to, you know, explore the original languages? Maybe, but then we're going to lose a lot of people and people are going to fall asleep. Well, does it mean like we're going to talk about really deep, meaningful theological themes? Maybe. That, that could be going deep. But if you think about it, like swimming. I remember as a kid learning how to swim in the deep end was like this scary side of the, the pool way over there. That was safe on this side. But going deep is dangerous. Because you have to swim. You have to tread water. You have to keep going when you feel like giving up. And getting deep in faith means doing things that are dangerous, doing things that are difficult, doing things that are are scary and uncomfortable. That's what what getting deep with God means. It's not just about, oh, let's explore the original language of the text, which is absolutely important and foundational. Same with theological themes, but confession is something deep and scary. But it's essential to the life of a disciple. So what I want to challenge you to do tonight, we've got a couple minutes left. I want you to feel comfortable. Make sure you get to know the people around you real good in the next couple minutes. Because I, I want you just to maybe confess a sin. Maybe it doesn't have to be like the worst sin ever, but just something, right? But just take a moment. We'll do a mini Jeremiah here. Instead of eight hours, we'll do five minutes. And confess something. Ready, go.
Make sure everyone gets a chance to share their dirt. Don't worry about me. Can you give me a thumbs up when you guys are, are through with your group? Okay, let's bring it back together here. Let's bring it back. You can keep confessing after, but thank you for for participating in that. Um, I remember doing this as a child. We started going to church at about seven years old after my parents got divorced. And this is something we did in Sunday school. And it makes me wonder, well, how can we don't do this in a larger church? You know, confession is not uh, saying, okay, well, I, I, uh, I've stolen stuff before and then justifying it. Well, they were rich, so it doesn't really, it's not that bad, right? But, but confession is not justifying your actions. Confession is putting your dirt out and, and, and leaving it there, leaving it there. I remember as a child when, when I was in that Sunday school class, seven or eight, maybe ten years old or something, and we were like confessing our sin. And the guy next to me grew up in the church and a uh, really good guy. But he, his like biggest sin was that he like didn't pray for his breakfast. And I'm like, what? I'm like, man, if that's your biggest sin, I don't even want to share mine now because they're horrible compared to that. The truth is, as Paul said in Romans 3, for all, all, that means everybody. Every single person in here. And that's what I love about what happens when we come to confession is that we realize that other people might be dealing with the same sin that we are. But what happens is when we sin, 
I think the enemy, I think Satan, whatever you want to call him, the enemy is trying to ostracize us, keep us, oh my gosh, you are so sick and rotten. No one could ever love you. And, and no one is dealing with what you are dealing with, but it's not the truth. It's not the truth. I bet if we were all honest with our confessions and open and clear, if we were open books and wrote down our, our confessions on the walls here, we would realize, oh my gosh, I'm going through the same thing that, that he or she is going through. And then we're able to partner with each other and walk through it together. That's exactly what the enemy does not want. But Paul writes, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but, I love this, but they are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He is our hope. He is our redemption. He's our Savior. I want to close in prayer tonight, and I'm going to do a, a prayer of confession, because I know there's a lot of stuff that we confess. We're like, that's like the least sin that I've ever committed. But there's some deep, dark ones that I just, I don't want anybody to know about those. But this is a time where you don't have to say it, but I want you to maybe to say it in your heart. Maybe mouth it. God, I'm, I'm confessing this. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. So God, I pray that you would take this sin that we confess to you tonight, that we can walk out of here maybe just a little bit more unburdened, that we can walk out of here lighter and ready to share your gospel truth, the good news of God's saving activity throughout history that culminates and climaxes in the event that has saved us from our sins, the death and resurrection of Jesus. For God, we believe that in you we can find the confession of our sins, that we can be healed and made whole. So to you belongs all glory and honor and praise. We thank you, Lord, for freeing us for setting the captives free. We once were blind, but Lord, now we see. And we see your glorious light. So help us not to go back to the chains that we have been released from, but help us to walk in the glorious light of the Lord in the land of the living. We praise and thank you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you so much for being here tonight. Thank you for sticking around a little bit later.